Stay tuned to acure.org for the latest updates on the world's only conference dedicated to cardiac unloading and heart recovery, acure.org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the January edition of Heart Sounds. I am your host, Shelley Wood, the managing editor of TCTMD. This is the podcast where I fill you in on some standout stories on TCTMD over the last four weeks and give you a chance to listen in on some of the interviews the reporters in my team did to pull these pieces together. The first ones I'll tell you about here stemmed not from studies of drugs or devices, but actually of cardiology as a profession and the costs, both personal and professional, many of you may face. Let's start there. This story is a good one, I think, to kick off the first podcast of the year, when those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, might already be feeling some midwinter blues and need a bit of a break. Earlier this month, TCTMD's Caitlin Cox covered a paper published in JAMA Network Open, led by Christine Sinsky of the American Medical Association, looking at how much vacation physicians actually take in a year. It turns out, and I'm guessing this comes as no surprise, most fail to take at least three weeks of annual leave. Other surveys and research have already showed what many of you already know. Doctors who take fewer vacation days each year are more likely to face burnout. As this new paper shows, those who continue to work while on vacation face the same burnout risks, even with as little as 30 minutes worked per day while on their scheduled breaks. Cardiologists were not analyzed as a separate category in the study, but rather fell under the umbrella of internal medicine. Within this group, 36.3% took at least three weeks break each year, and 42% worked at least 30 minutes per day while on vacation. Slightly more than half, 54%, had EHR inbox coverage. Caitlin asked Lakshmi Mehta of the Ohio State University for her thoughts on these numbers. Have a listen. I think what's shocking is um, the number of people not taking more than 15 days of vacation. And I'm not sure if that's like, if it's an individual decision that they feel they can't or their organization doesn't even give them that time or that protection. Or it's hard to say the exact root cause of it, but it is very concerning that they're not taking time off. In addition, when we think of physicians, you know, most of us work, you know, long hours and weekends. So if we think about that, it's it's almost like you're a 24-7 doctor anyhow, just because the, the cases are in your mind and, and whatnot. So, like, it's hard to turn off. And then if you even have that moment of vacation where there's ability to turn off more and you're not able to even do that, it's problematic. So... I'm not surprised with the number of people that are looking at electronic health records because everybody's different Mm -hmm. while on vacation. So some people have the capability of having someone fully cover. Some people prefer to just be completely shut down from their electronic health records. And then there's others that like to stay caught up and better than having the avalanche of trying to catch up, even if things were taken care of, trying to catch up to figure out what happened while they were gone. So they prefer to just dig away a little at a time as well. 
If it's not work stress driving burnout in cardiologists, it might be financial. Some working in private practice might be finding they are increasingly attractive to private equity firms looking to expand their interests and potentially solve some of their financial problems. As Michael O'Reardon reported this month, an aging population with a high burden of cardiovascular disease, along with a shift to high-priced outpatient procedures, make cardiovascular healthcare a particularly appealing target for private equity interests. But as Partha Sardar of Columbia University Irving Medical Center and Columbia Business School in New York told TCTMD, the last two or three years have seen a significant spike in interest by these types of investors who, by definition, are interested primarily in profits, not in quality of care. Sardar and his co-authors published a paper in Jack this month outlining the potential risks and benefits of private equity investment in cardiology, noting that there are instances where it might make sense for smaller practices struggling to keep afloat. But some published studies have documented more billing and also more signals of eroding quality of care. Mike spoke with Samuel Jones IV, past chair of the American College of Cardiology's Health Affairs Committee, who told Mike he was glad he was covering this particular paper for TCTMD. One of the things that we need to do is make sure we get the information out there. The ACC has MedAxiom that you know, MedAxiom's doing a great job about trying to educate the members as well. We're just trying to make sure that, that our that cardiologists are aware of this, that we really want people to uh, do their own research, mm-hmm. go in with these with their eyes wide open, understand that this is really a marriage, right? You're not really, this isn't dating anymore. You enter these things, this is a marriage. <laughs> and it, you can't back out of this once right. you get in there. So you need to understand what you're doing. And if you go in with the private equity, uh, under, make sure that the values reflect the values of your organization. Of course, it wasn't all cardiology practice and business this month. Laura McEwen covered a topic that will likely be just as welcomed by patients as it will be by their healthcare providers. This was a small, randomized study published in the American Journal of Critical Care that randomized patients scheduled for invasive coronary interventions to the standard NPO order, eating nothing past midnight the night before, or to no restrictions on food and drink pre-procedure. Led by Carrie Woods, MSN and RN of Parkview Heart Institute in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the small study found that patients permitted to eat anything they wanted off the hospital's heart-healthy menu up to the time of their cardiac catheterization did not increase the risk of adverse events compared with the standard NPO. What's more, easing up on the restrictions appeared to improve patient satisfaction, not surprisingly, that was due to less hunger and thirst before and after their procedures, Patient comfort and satisfaction improved, and as Laura heard from Ms. Woods, getting rid of these kinds of standing orders typically translates into less ire being directed at everyone in the healthcare team. Here's what Woods had to say. All of us had had experience and frustrations with patients that were frustrated with not being able to eat. You know, their procedure would get delayed because of emergencies coming in, and it would be hours upon hours of them not being able to eat, and they get upset and they get grumpy and then the nurses get the brunt of that.
You likely have not thought much about RAFT in a while. RAFT was the study published back in 2010 that cemented the role of a cardiac resynchronization therapy defibrillator, or CRTD, over an ICD alone in patients with heart failure by showing a 5.3% lower absolute rate of all-cause death out to 3.3 years. Now, in an analysis that extends follow-up of the trial out to a median of 7.7 years overall and 13.9 years among survivors, the rate of all-cause death remained more than 5% lower in CRTD-treated patients than in those that initially got an ICD. John Stapp of Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and colleagues reported these late data mid-January in the New England Journal of Medicine. And as Sapp told TCTMD's Todd Neal, these late findings were a bit of a surprise. Patients randomized to ICD originally would have started crossing over to CRTD at the end of the trial, which would be expected to bring the survival curves together over time. That has not happened. That's useful, he continued, when discussing treatment options with patients because it will give a better sense of the risk-benefit trade-off. Todd also spoke with Lynn Warner-Stevenson of Vanderbilt University in Nashville and put the question to her. How will these longer-term RAF data impact her practice? Well, most of the data has really been in the class 3 patients, and although it's indicated for class 2, I think we've been inclined less to go quickly to CRT and a patient who's clinically doing well. This really makes me want to try to treat that left bundle branch block sooner in these patients, even if they're still pretty well compensated with their heart failure. Once the ejection fraction is less than 30%, I think we should be very seriously considering CRT, really regardless of their symptomatic status. If we make that change in our thoughts, we're just bringing it up to parallel how we approach medical therapy. Because in medical therapy, we don't wait for symptoms. As soon as the ejection fraction is low, we go ahead and start our therapies. And um, our threshold for that is 40%. So I think we should be looking at when the ejection fraction has started to fall in terms of CRT in those patients who have a left bundle branch block and think about doing CRT right away and not waiting until there's evidence of more symptomatic heart failure. The last story we'll be talking about today comes to you from Yael Maxwell, who has for years been covering the ups and downs of PFO closure for cryptogenic stroke. This month, Yael covered a paper published in Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes, indicating that more than one-third of patients treated with device closure of their PFO between 2006 and 2019 in the United States did not have a documented stroke in the two years prior to having their PFO closed, and almost one in five patients had atrial fibrillation at baseline, hinting at a substantial rate of off-label, and possibly unhelpful, use. This study was led by Andrew Goldswig of Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. The authors reviewed medical records from more than 5,300 patients and documented a rising use of PFO closure devices accompanying regulatory approval. But these same records found that the primary indication for PFO closure was for stroke or systemic embolism, which is the approved indication, in just 58% of patients. Another 10% of records listed TIA, 8.8% listed migraine, and more than 22% listed unknown reason. So is that amount of off-label use expected or explainable in some way? 
Yeah, I'll put the question to Dr. Goldswig. So what does this mean? I mean, is this is this a bad thing? Is this something that means something should change? Or is this kind of expected with something like this? So I don't know whether it's a bad thing or a good thing. It depends on kind of one's perspective on the numbers. What it means uh, is it has it has significant health policy implications, I think, um, because it's not just related to PFO and the kind of the way we titled it. This is, you know, the PFO story, but it's really about approval, evidence, and off-label device utilization. This, this study reflects issues that are relevant to all medical devices mm-hmm. that, uh, I mean, ultimately, I think, I would believe that regulators and payers need to develop mechanisms to uh, promote using devices for approved indications without stifling creativity. You know, they want to facilitate clinical trials to investigate other possible indications, but, you know, they don't want to kind of sign a blank check and have devices chronically used for other possible indications. That is all I've got for you for Heart Sounds for January 2024. Of course, there's much, much more on TCTMD this month. We had some great long reads worth a few minutes of your time. Michael Reardon delved into the question of whether TAVI procedures can or should be done at sites that don't have surgical backup. Todd Neal did a deep dive into whether it is truly feasible and necessary to do a sham controlled trial of AF ablation given the state of that field. Find all this and more at tctmd.com. You can also check out some of our first conference coverage of the year. Caitlin Cox was on the ground at the ICESIT meeting in Miami, while Yael Maxwell was at STS in San Antonio. Find that meeting news under our conference tab on tctmd.com. If you have got news tips for me or any feedback on this program or any of our other content, you can find me. I am at swood at tctmd.com or on the platform formerly known as Twitter, where I am Shelley Wood too. Thanks again for tuning into Heart Sounds. Catch you back here next month. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanna Moran. All new episodes are available on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud.